Coming up next, the booking reads. Or no, I need to say that. How would a creepy voice? <laughs> Coming up next, <laughs> <laughs> the booking <laughs> reads Dracula. <laughs> the booking and uh you know it occurred to me that seasons of mist and mellow fruitfulness close bosom friend of the maturing sun <laughs> exactly those were my thoughts too um to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells <laughs> and any anyone care to hazard a guess why i would say such a thing I haven't a clue. <laughs> because it's autumn, the greatest season, season of the year. You've got uh, children bobbing for apples on every street corner. Yep. And uh, goblins. goblins and ghosts and ghouls galore, uh, all leading to All Hallows' Eve, which then leads into All Saints' Day, in my humble opinion. And so, to celebrate autumn and to celebrate the scary holiday of Halloween, we are going to be reading a fearsome tale of terror today. But first, I'll introduce my fiendish companions. We've got the pastor who's a master of reading, Jake Menzel. Hi. How you doing, Jake? Doing well. How about you? Are you feeling the crisp autumn? Chilling me to the bone. Chilling you to the bone. And we've got the PhD, ABD. That ABD is Right scary. there. Brandon Chastain there, right? In the flesh himself. The, the rotting flesh, one the might rotting. even say. Every second you're rotting a little bit more. That's exactly right. And apropos for the book that we're going to be discussing today. Yep. How you doing, Brandon? I'm doing pretty well. And of course, the book that we are going to be discussing is Bram Stoker's Dracula. So how are you guys doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing... Oh my goodness! The, the silver bullets are being fired in the air, and holy bullets, like from the guns of Quincy Morris himself, the contextual Texan. Brandon Chastain is about to give us some much-needed context, as he does every third episode or so every time we start a new book brandon gives us context isn't that right brandon that is right with a hail and hearty that's right (laughs) brandon is going to give you some context but in a creepy twist i will actually be assisting in the context today since i know a lot about horror literature and literature of the uncanny and supernatural weird fiction as we might call it but we'll let brandon take it away with just some uh, general context well this book was written at the End of the 1800s, the turn of the century. It was published in, what, 1897, I think, is when it came out? I believe that is correct. So it was a, uh, I don't know what you would call that, a turn of the century novel? <laughs> <laughs> and we're off. And we are off <laughs> to a great start here. It was written by Bram St- 
Stoker, who had an interesting career. He was primarily known for managing, I think, a theater called the Lyceum, and in particular, uh, this actor, Henry Irving. The most he was, famous thespian of his day, a great Shakespearean interpreter and all that sort of thing. Apparently a bit of a drama queen, hard to deal with. And when the Lyceum crashed and burned, Bram Stoker himself crashed and burned and died fairly soon after that. So this was his life. Writing never really was what he did by trade, I don't believe. No. Although he published something like 10 novels and uh, several collections of short stories, he was fairly prolific within a short life. Yeah, and but Dracula never made a lot of money in its time. It was seen by some who were aficionados of horror that it was groundbreaking and such, but a lot of people, they saw it as a thrilling story, but they weren't necessarily hailing it as a classic at the time. He was writing in a period where a lot of interesting things were happening. I mean, he was a contemporary of like Oscar Wilde. Actually, Oscar Wilde was one of the suitors of the woman who later became uh, Mrs. Bram Stoker. And uh, Bram Stoker did meet Oscar Wilde in his lifetime. We've seen this with other writers that their world is very small. So I think with Twain, we saw he he went and he knew who was it. I can't even remember now. Oh, but uh, the Harriet most Beecher famous Stone. example we've seen is Ernest Hemingway going to Paris, and all these writers were together, and so th- th- their worlds were small. They all knew each other, and the social circles they ran in. And also, at the time, you had science fiction was growing into a, an art form that people actually semi respected. So H.G. Wells, he was writing at the time. And one of the forms that was developing was this idea of invasion literature. And so with H.G. Wells, you had invasion by otherworldly beings. And with this, it's interesting to look at this as a sort of invasion literature because you have, from the very beginning, you know, the idea of the German and the Germanic and this darkness that's on the edges of Europe that could easily come and invade the unknown and invade the pinnacle of civilization at the time. London. Yeah, which is London, with your where everybody's a gentleman and the best of gentlemen. So <laughs> even sure the Texans are. are the best of gentlemen. Yep. <laughs> hey, and so you had this idea of the civilized world and the outsider, the other who could come and invade and disturb things. And Dracula participates in this um, history. Also at the time, you had this idea of progressive. Everything was progressing. And so science was very optimistic. It looked towards the future as a bright future. So we weren't yet into the postmodernism of our day where everything is post-apocalyptic and we're looking forward to either zombies or the eradication of man with global warming or whatever it is we're um, enticed by today. At that point, you had... The struggle of progressive man against the natural world, or particularly against the forces, the barbaric forces, the, so in this case, Transylvania and the wolves. And London was very, it was a city, it was urban. And so it had all the refined culture there. And H.G. Wells was a proponent of this. With science, we were going to conquer the world and we were going to make everything better and it was going to heal everybody and it was going to heal everything. And so you see a bit of this, I think. In I, I think as you well. actually see quite a bit of it because what you see is 
all he has like a fetish for inventions you've got the phonograph you've got yep. the typewriter and this is all new cool stuff that he's i mean it would be like if we wrote a story about aliens coming and we're defeating it with our i don't know what our oculuses or our um iphone 7s <laughs> help me out <laughs> they're using telegrams they're using phonographs they're using these cylinders they're using the typewriter she brings a typewriter along yep. and he be, he makes sure to document this it's just everywhere the electric lights that they bring into Carfax Abbey when they explore it. This was the turn of the 20th century. Thomas Edison would have been in his prime, I believe, or somewhere in his lifetime at least. So yeah, I think you are seeing this optimism in the novel. And I think you can't let it go by you without noticing, you know, it doesn't seem like anything special to us that Mina writes on a typewriter in shorthand. Shorthand, she keeps talking about her shorthand. That was a new invention at the time. That was newfangled and cool and modern. Yeah, and Dracula, he's old and he's ancient and he represents this darkness that's on the edge of society that the urban culture is supposed to be able to get rid of through progressive science you know so they can conquer this madness like in renfield and everything can become better and so that's a fairly popular idea up until about the 20s when world war one would completely shatter that optimism because they would see the big machines that they were building come and be able to kill millions but yeah at the time Everybody thought that the phonograph was a representation of a machine that was a representation of another machine that would save everyone. Disease would be conquered. The we'd blood all, transfusions are yeah, another we'd all, we'd really all the, newfangled thing at the time. Yeah. Really cool for to read about the blood transfusions that keep a Lucy alive yep. like five times or whatever it is. Yeah. And so the when you're dealing with that sort of thing, it always is tiptoeing around the strange and the new and the uncanny. And so there's a reason that those things go hand in hand, that with this progressive machine literature, you also get the weirdness that you have, like in some of H.G. Wells' novels, for example, the the time machine with those creatures. The Morlocks. Yeah, the Morlocks. I mean, you get some really weird stuff. So just a short history of vampires in general, vampires in literature and folklore. Pretty much Van Helsing's not lying when he says that every culture has its stories of vampires, of blood drinkers. Of course, it's been refined quite a bit over the years. The Persians had their blood drinking demons. I think we see some some hieroglyphs or some, you know, pottery shards that have blood drinking demons. The Hebrews had Lilith, who was a blood, drank the blood of babies the ancient assyrians every ancient culture has some kind of blood drinker it's been a very common idea throughout history there's nothing really new about it what happened in the 1800s is that all the stories and the folklore came together and began to sort of be codified so you had the Eastern European kind of Slavic tradition of the shrouded family corpse that would come back and would feed on the family members and all that kind of stuff. That would be the most direct precedent to the first great vampire story in English. And I think actually the first vampire story in English is called, interestingly enough, The Vampire. It was written by a gentleman by the name of John Polidori, who is very famous for being a companion of Lord Byron. And um, his doctor, wasn't he? Dr. John Polidori. If you know the story of how Frankenstein came to be, forgive me if you've heard this before, and I think you guys probably have. So in 1816, you have Percy Shelley and Lord Byron spend a summer together on Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Byron has just basically been driven out of London due to his infamous terrible behavior. He's this enfant terrible or infant, however you say that. He's, terrible. An, he's this enfant terrible. 
<laughs> just say it. Enfant terrible. <laughs> yes. He's that. Uh, he's this uh, bisexual poet. Uh, he would have been about 28, I think, at the time. He was seducing men, seducing women. Um, stop me if I get any of the details right. I'm painting with a bra or... If anything, you're just making him look a little better than he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Stop me if I get any of the details right. <laughs> I will make Go sure on. you get them all wrong. <laughs> right. um, so his, his broheem, Percy Shelley, comes and joins him, and he brings along the Goodwin sisters, Mary Goodwin, Claire, uh, I don't think her name was actually Claire Goodwin at the time, but she was... like a half-sister or step-sister. Yeah, she's a sister or half-sister or something of Mary. Mary Goodwin, of course, is basically sleeping with Shelley at the time. They're not married yet. She's not Mary Shelley. She's just this 18-year-old girl who basically ran away with Shelley. Meanwhile, Shelley's wife is going to commit suicide, his first wife. And then you've got Byron, who impregnated Claire and then left her in the dust. So she wants to catch up with Byron. So all these people, most of them in their early 20s, Mary Shelley, Mary Goodwin was 18 at the time. I think the oldest was Lord Byron at 28. All these incredibly young romantic, dark, hippie poet types come to this lake and spend the summer together. And there's the one other important character that I forgot to mention, which is Dr. John Polidori, who was Byron's traveling companion at the time and was kind of a literary hanger-on, a wannabe. He was writing a diary that he was hoping to get published based on his account of hanging out with Byron. And Byron really couldn't stand him. It's kind of funny. John Polidori had a sad life. He died, I think, at 26 by drinking acid to commit suicide because of some gambling debts. So anyway, if you know your history of gothic literature or if you know your Shelley or if you know your Mary Shelley then you know the famous story of them all being cooped up in this lake it's raining they're reading German ghost stories to pass the time and Lord Byron I, I think it was suggested that they all write stories and the famous thing that happened is that young Mary Goodwin had a nightmare or whatever it was she did and she ended up creating what would become Frankenstein out of that but what a lot of people don't know is that the modern vampire story actually comes from that same event. Uh, Byron wrote a fragment, which he abandoned, which he thought was just, you know, he didn't think it was worth finishing. But this literary hanger-on wannabe, Polidari, took the fragment, fleshed it out, and uh, it ended up somehow getting published under Byron's name about three years later as the vampire, and immediately took the world by storm. There were operas being written about it. There were adaptations. You know, copyright law was weird at the time. So suddenly all these other countries are writing adaptations of of it and doing operas. And uh, everybody thinks it's Byron. To this day, you'll still find uh, modern collections that publish it under Byron's name. But it was actually, everybody agrees, including Byron, who was very dismissive of it, that it is the work of uh, Dr. John Polidari. And it is the first modern vampire story in that it's about an aristocratic, pale man who ends up seducing ladies and being real mysterious and being very Byronic. A lot of people think that it was intentionally kind of an attack or satire on Lord Byron. The vampire's name even is Lord Ruthven. And, uh, you know, it ends with him seducing and marrying a lady. And then the next morning she's found, you know, drenched in blood and her bed or whatever it's very gothic but that introduced and kind of set the stage for the vampire as an aristocratic dracula type figure and then next you have uh, vampires were very popular stoker didn't invent all of this what he did do is take a fairly popular trope at the time there were lots of penny drevels there's one funny one called varney the vampire which ran to about a thousand pages and i think it was the subtitle was the feast of blood varney the vampire or the feast of blood (laughs) um 
So you've got you've got all this popular stuff. I guess what I maybe compare it compare Stoker to he's this is giving Stoker maybe too much credit or it's too high praise. The analogy is not perfect, but he's, he's he's maybe the Beatles of vampire writing, right? He's he didn't invent rock and roll. He didn't invent any of the musical forms, but he synthesized them into a whole and put them together in one awesome package, which is what the Beatles did for music in the 1960s and was what, in his own small way, Bram Stoker did for vampire stories. He just wrote the one that happened to capture people's imagination. It is much better written than Varney the Vampire and has a much cooler title for its lead character than Varney the Vampire. Varney the Vampire is just a cheap piece of trash i mean it's like a harlequin romance of its time so you have him drawing on all these different influences and he just kind of puts it all together and creates the one indelible vampire story that just ends up catching people's imagination and lasting i don't know whether it would have lasted if it wasn't for the success of the bela lugosi movie which would have come out i believe in 1929 or 30 just around the advent of sound famous Bela Lugosi movie. When you think about Dracula, you think about Bela Lugosi. He's got the widow's peak and the black cape and, you know, says, I want to suck your blood and all that kind of stuff. He's, he's got that accent, which was Bela Lugosi's real accent. So that's who we think of. And that's all the, also the first really sexy depiction of Dracula. That and the stage plays that came before it were kind of moving in that direction. It's arguable that Dracula owes its fame to him becoming a pop culture icon through the Universal movies. But who knows? Like we've said on the podcast before, who knows what posterity is going to do or why it does does it. The fact is, Dracula, for whatever reason, has caught in the public imagination. And if you're going to write a vampire story you kind of it's, you kind of have to deal with it one way or another it's just the you know you can run away from it you can say my vampire is not scared of crucifixes and he can't turn into a bad and it's all medical but one way or another you have to deal with dracula it's just an indelible mark on that little genre which i guess leads us to the question of why vampire stories are popular and i'll open up the floor for this one because every, I'd say, 10 or 20 years, we see a boom. And, you know, there was the Anne Rice. Within my lifetime, there was Anne Rice was really popular and all these kind of, it's from the vampire's point of view stories. Um, and then those kind of yeah, wore themselves, burned themselves out. And then we had Twilight a few years ago. But if you remember that, you know, there was True Blood and Twilight. And it's like vampires hit and they were really exciting. And then everybody got tired of them. And that seems to be a repeating pop culture motif is that people just keep coming back to these creatures and are fascinated by them and they're all manner of uh explanation has been given to it from the psychosexual for example to um well that's the main one mm-hmm. you see this throughout the dracula is this theme of what causes dracula to to exist is at the heart of all good and that's why he's so scary there's one part of the book where it says that oh it's when they're talking about the fact that he has to use holy soil to sleep in Right. And they said that's in Van Helsing makes some point that that's what makes it terrible. Maybe it's not him who makes the point. It could be Rom Stoker. I don't remember. But he, somebody makes the point that what makes this so terrifying is that it's at the heart of all good. Right. It's, it's creeping around the edges of everything that's good. De- this undead quality, whatever mm-hmm. that might be. And so the introduction to my book, I always like telling people what I have. I have a Bantam classic this time. I have no idea who wrote the end. George Stade. I think he's a professor in an Irish school. Of course, he gives the obvious um, psychoanalytic reading of, what do you want to say about it, of the Freudianism, of the sex drive that's in the lust and the repression that's at the root of all this. And so obviously women 
are a source of desire and also a source of terror. But he goes, yeah, he goes all psychoanalytical on it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever really talked a lot about psychoanalytic theory with literature, but for a while it was like all the rave. When so, for a while? Within like our lifetimes or uh, early? No, it was earlier than our Like lifetime. the 60s? Yeah. Or... It came back a little bit. I mean, people still like it some. It's just become a little weirder. So um, one person who's in vogue today is a guy named Jacques Lacan, and he was a follower of Freud and developed a lot of his theories. And then another one, I don't know why anybody would ever care to read these people, but the other famous one is called Zizek, and he's... Uh, he's from some Eastern European country and he uses Freudian philosophy and mixes it with like Marxism and socialism to talk about our drives and our inner demons and all that Freudianism has brought to light. The thing that you can't escape with Dracula, I mean, the reason that people talk about Dracula through a Freudian lens is because, like you said, the psychosexual is so obvious. It's almost text. It's almost not subtext. Yeah, I mean, you've got... When the three weird sisters are voluptuously licking their lips and everything yep. like that. It's just and he like, wants them to kiss. Yeah. Mm. And there's just, yeah, the, I mean, the biting of the neck and the consuming of blood. and An interesting point, though, is that, yeah. now I don't actually know this firsthand because I've not read them, but secondhand I have read that no critic of Stoker's time read it that way. Really? Nobody saw the sexual that just seems like to scream to us. So I'm not sure what to make of that, but it's an interesting tidbit yeah here you go um this is talking about the last bit of the novel their bravery consists largely of self-control of a rigid moral armament against temptation but is related to the progressive values of high victorian culture of which these men eminent victorians all are the custodians the last third of the novel reads like a parable of consciousness oh unconscious cerebration cerebration says dr seward you will have to give the wall to your conscious brother a sentiment that anticipates freud's famous formula where it was their ego shall be and so he's arguing that you see this ego in it all over the place. And with psychoanalytic theory like this, you want to read all characters as dealing with their repressions or dealing with lusts that always want to bubble to the surface and that they're trying to ignore and avoid. And so, of course, this is a popular way of reading Victorian literature because everybody wants to see the Victorians as repressed. And so with a psychoanalytic reading, what's at the edges of this would be these guys want to see themselves as gentlemen and these ladies want to see themselves as ladies, but you always have what's called the return of the repressed, Mm -hmm. which is represented by the vampire. And so it's not so much that Dracula is the ultimate evil. It's the fact that we can become Dracula, Mm -hmm. that Dracula's in us. And when the women try and express themselves, the men put stakes through their heart. I mean, it's about as, it's about as Freudian and phallic and all that sort of thing as you can possibly imagine, you know, this woman suddenly, uh, is not repressed anymore. And so what do we need to do? We need to hammer a big stake through her heart and cut off her head because that's what we as gentlemen do. And then we're going to congratulate ourselves for how we gave her peace. Yeah. Cause in, you know, for what it's worth, it may or may not be interesting to read it that way, but certainly fits what Freud said. Some theories are just like, okay, whatever, who cares? One interesting thing about Freud is this theory of the uncanny, and I think you mentioned it before. And it's the aesthetics. It's an aesthetic theory. It has to do with um, things that we are scared of and terrified of coming into sight, and then we're scared of them because they remind us of something that we've forgotten, right? And so it's what I said earlier. It's the return of the repressed. And so in a novel like this, it's... The fact that we're all dying and dead and we're 
that having to deal with that and these these progressive people who want to be able to conquer death having to deal with the fact that they're already dying you know and then also the weird interplay between the catholic religious symbolism and this wickedness and evil and whatever that evil is the fact that it is voluptuous and that dracula and his it, it is very sexual too right he's got a weird charisma about him i think that is he described as voluptuous not voluptuous but he's described as sensuous right mm-hmm. and so hard sensuous lips or something yeah. like that yeah yeah so he he's animal like he can't he gives into his passions and then you have on the opposite extreme this victorian gentleman who is able to control his desires and he's rigid and that's his manliness is the fact that he can control himself and so obvious i mean it's clear why people want to read that is a fight between the ego and the id because classically that is the ego versus the id the ego with its rules versus the id which would be dracula in this case and it's It's scary to van helsing because he realizes he could lose his mind and he could become one of the undead too it's mina she is slowly throughout the last half of this novel becoming one of the brides of Draculans. And we know she's the most virtuous woman to ever live with the prettiest face and the brain of a man and the heart of a woman. And yet even she can be corrupted by this profane thing. Yeah, the thing that's interesting about that is that usually on the bookening, when we talk about these scholars and we uh, set up their theories, it's to knock them down. I don't actually know how much knocking down I want to do this time. I do agree that the sexual reading is pretty unavoidable. And I suppose we'll get into this as we talk more. There are ways in which I would disagree with the scholars. I mean, the whole idea of repression, perhaps. But um, I suppose we'll get into that more. What Anything else? Well, I mean, in certain directions they take it would be that this is a statement on late capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right. And so guys... Jonathan uh, slashes Dracula with his knife and money comes... Yeah. Uh, and so Dracula, he's the representation of opulence, of aristocracy gone really bad. But then they defeat him with aristocracy gone right in a weird sort yeah. of way. And so whatever. So it's like capitalism trying to argue for itself by killing itself. I guess that would be the Freudian late capitalist reading of this so that a guy might like Zizak might do. So it would be that, you know, to become the father, you have to kill the father sort of thing. Capitalism argues for its own existence by killing its old self, and then it gets to live again. You could make a very nice term paper out of that. Maybe I'll write that. (laughs) You can finally get your D. Yeah, there we go. Here I come. That can be your D. D for dissertation and Dracula. Dead. (laughs) Dead. All but dead. Uh, Another interesting piece of trivia. They say uh, a lot of people think Bram Stoker died of syphilis, which is... You know, you can't help but give some import to that if you like to read Dracula sexually. He also did not have a great relationship with his wife, which uh, is hard not to read into that as well. Yeah, if that, you know, if you try to get psychoanalytical with that, you know, he's mean as a passive aggressive way of showing his wife the kind of woman that she she ought to have been. And Mm -hmm. Lucy is maybe a way of punishing his wife for the kind of woman that she was. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was, I guess, a vibrant stage actress and all this kind of thing. Kind of, she probably did have three suitors. Well, we know she had at least two: Oscar Wilde and Bram Stoker. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yikes. Yeah. Um, and so he kills her, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's open it up a little bit more, Jake. Do you, is there anything you want to say about why you think 
people like vampire stories. Well, so what is it about Dracula? I mean, there you sort of have a lot of elements conspiring together. I, I think that's what makes it so hard to talk about. One, his name is just, in I think, intrinsically scary. Dracula is a scary-sounding name. So you, you can start there. It's just like this sort of like magic cocktail. The fact that he's a vampire and vampires feed on the flesh and suck the blood of their brides, which is, and, and are uh, repelled by religious artifacts, which is obviously the exact opposite of Jesus who gives his body and blood to, to feed and nourish his bride. So there's that, and there's that whole sort of inverse... Uh, Antichrist. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's Antichrist. And that's really compelling because you're tapping into something that's really real and true, and you're flipping it on its head, and that's a scary, supernaturally creepy sort of thing. We all know deep down that... Um, there are spiritual realities and they're just like with, with with Macbeth part of what was compelling about Macbeth is he's going to put the witches on stage and give them spells and incantations and that's what does go on behind closed doors what goes on in you know witches hovels or whatever they around the cauldron <laughs> yeah what, what goes on around the cauldron this is sort of the closest thing you can get to satanic demonic type figure. So there's that. There's the fact that he's predatory and so many people have been preyed upon in one way or another. And we all have that sort of deep-seated fear of the predator who's going to come and corrupt us or who who maybe has come and corrupted us and has turned us into a predator like himself. And so there, there are a lot of reasons why somebody who's been molested as a child or abused physically and maybe someone who's then gone on to molest or abuse uh, themselves, which is very, very common, would find a cathartic release for their guilt in Dracula and the death of Dracula or a cathartic release, not for their guilt, but for their having been corrupted. Yeah, or for their desire. Um, yeah, so... Uh, <sighs> Horror is a, a magnificent genre for processing all of your subconscious guilt, and you can bring to it whatever you want, and whatever terrifies you on your bed at night is all one way or another, just reflecting back on the fact that you're going to stand before something much scarier, not because it's surrounded by what's holy, but because it is mm-hmm. holy. He is holy, and you're going to have to face that, the judgment, and all of God's holy and righteous fury and one way or another, you're going to you're going to process that. Um, you're you're going to come face to face with God, and embrace Jesus, or you're going to find ways to silence your conscience and ways to silence your guilt, and then ways to process it. Yeah, I don't know what was in Stoker's mind when he wrote this, but I think that's a large part of the appeal. Yeah, and I, and, and I think vampires are just they're transgressive, and whether or not this is you know. What we see is sexual all over the place in Stoker. Um, whether or not he knew what he was doing and was intentional about it, but he seems to, I don't, be, I can't to be pretty handy. If, if anything, he doesn't, I would say, yeah. just reading between the lines. But we but, can talk about But that certainly more. people see it, mm-hmm. and um, the the whole genre has been... Reappropriated? Yeah, it's been appropriated. The whole genre of vampire literature has been appropriated uh, for for sexual purposes, for romance, for romance, for uh, vampires, they dominate you, and they but they're actually intrinsically really weak, and they need to suck the life out of you. 
so that they can have life and vitality. And that's what Dracula does. He gets younger and more vibrant and more vital as he feeds, as he prays Mm -hmm. on people. And so there are all kinds of ways that people take that and use that for uh, in sexual ways. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's fun about horror stories when done correctly and perhaps dangerous about them when done poorly or when done evilly, is that they are so broadly metaphorical. I mean, you can just pack so much allegory into a horror story, and um, somehow it doesn't seem as ham-fisted as a happy allegory. Part of the reason I'd say that, well, for one, thanks for bringing up the word subconscious, because I completely (laughs) forgot to mention that with Freudian. But as for why horror is better than allegory for Mm -hmm. doing some of these things, Part of it has to do with the fact that if you can build a world that's a believable world, it's always a better way to tell a story mm-hmm. rather than a, a world that's obviously just puppets. And so, and as world, you, it's sad to say, but as humans, we're it's much easier for us to believe in darkness taken to its powerful, supernatural, logical conclusion than it is for us to take good. You know, it's it's very hard for someone to betray portray what the ultimate good will would be like we see that in this novel because a lot of stoker's attempt to do just that is very ham-fisted but it's it's much easier and more potent for us sad perhaps but true that it's just uh as humans taking that imaginative next leap into is evil capable of is, is something that uh comes much more naturally to us in our sinful state i don't i may have just like totally ruined your point though did i no that was Well, I was going to take your point in a different direction. Well, go ahead. Which was just to say that, yeah, so one of the dangers of horror is, yeah, it's more effective than allegory at tapping into your subconscious, but maybe not... um, Doing anything with it. Doing anything with it, except for bringing you some sense of catharsis. Mm. Um, And I think that's one of the dangers of horror, because it provides some sort of cathartic relief, a temporary cathartic relief for your repressed conscience without helping you, without helping you actually process what it is you're hiding, what it is you're trying to run from. If there is a, a, a good or great way to use horror, it's it's to help you tap into that and then understand yourself and understand yourself in, in the light of God. We, we always bring come back to that Chesterton quote about dragons. The best horror, the good horror, is the horror that teaches us that there are dragons. I can't even come up with the quote. We've said it a every, every time. Every time we say we should, like, yeah, we should come in up. with it written <laughs> down or com- committed to memory. Not that they just or... exist, but that they can be killed, right? Right. And uh, I guess we haven't gotten to baggage check yet, but for me, that was uh, something that I really actually responded to in Dracula was uh, that I, li- I really liked the idea of this band of stalwart, fearless vampire yeah. killers, like, teaming up and all being best friends. Like, I want to team up with my best friends and kill monsters <laughs> and <laughs> protect ladies, you know? Forget this podcast. Come on, guys. <laughs> Come on. Let's yeah, go let's go find some vampires. <laughs> That is one of the things about this that in my mind sets it apart from, uh, maybe it's because it's so early in the horror genre or whatever, but the good guys win. Yeah, well, I've spent my life, unfortunately, watching a lot of vampire movies and things like that. I don't recommend it. I've repented of many of them at this point. But I can tell you that in the 20th century canon of vampire literature and vampire stories, it's absolutely striking how optimistic and um, good-hearted this novel is in some ways. I mean, it's got mm-hmm. some powerfully horrible and off-putting scenes, particularly the final one with Mia, Mina, I'd say. But the overall 
goodwill prevail and, you know, them saying we are God's own army or whatever Van Helsing in his dopey speech says at some point, we're God's own band, I think he says, or something like that. And the the fact that they all see themselves as doing this noble thing and then they do it, they really don't have that much trouble doing it, you know. Um, <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of easy. Kinda, to be kind of easy. Isn't right. It? Dracula eludes him a couple times. They, they combine their modern technology. Dracula makes a big mistake by giving me his her brain <laughs> power to you know be, be hypnotized and then they use it to hunt him down and you, you're like you're ready for the big confrontation but there is no big confrontation there's yeah. just boom he's dead he's dead <laughs> got him got him <laughs> got him yeah. <laughs> good job guys high five oh quincy, oh, quincy. Oh, yeah. they even give him a cathartic send-off is uh, right. sad. Like he gets to say i would have rather died no other way right <laughs> little lady or whatever and then they name their kid after him or they name their kid after all their buddies but um yeah yeah most most vampire stories are very explicitly sexual these days most vampire stories i think anybody that's seen a modern dracula movie like if you've seen that stupid francis ford coppola movie which i think you've seen right yeah takes the sex and goes haywire with it well he creates this whole backstory the movie's called bram stoker's dracula which kind of uh, makes me unhappy but he, he creates this whole backstory where mina is dracula's reincarnated lover and they're their love at first sight and then when he's like making her drink the blood from his chest it's this big grand dark romantic gesture and then she finally frees his soul at the end and it's real beautiful and john jonathan harker is played by keanu reeves in one of his uh <laughs> stellar performances <laughs> whoa <laughs> dracula man <laughs> yeah they they always my larger point was just that anybody i think that is reading this novel for the first time but does know vampire stories will be shocked by how much of a monster dracula actually is and how little of that whole byronic brooding sexy kind of stuff there is there's a little tiny taste of it maybe in the novel but he really is just a a leech on two legs, as I think Stephen King called him. He's just a nasty yeah. monster, an old man with a mustache, which always takes people by surprise. Took me by um, surprise. And, uh, you know, he's just, his, his his wives, I guess, or whatever they are, are kind of sexy. But Dracula really is a monster in this novel. And most vampires are to be pitied in modern vampire fiction, to be pitied or to be adored, if they happen to be uh, our friend Edward or um, Lestat from the Anne Rice novels. Yeah, whatever sexual about it, he's it's perverse. Yeah, it's bad. And that's what you don't see with the modern vampire stories, is the sexuality isn't perverse, because yeah. there's no perversion to be had. You, you can't be perverse. What would be perverse would be to tell them not to consummate their love that would be the perversion right and bella here, in the twilight yeah. i haven't read them but i've wikipedia them and bella gets turned into a vampire and yeah. there's the will they won't they and the they will he turns her into a vampire and then they live out eternity you know drinking blood and hanging out i don't know what they do it sounds kind of boring yeah I mean, but in this one there's darkness and there's evil and sexuality can be evil and wicked and perverse <laughs> But it's really black and white. That's one of the, yeah. maybe this is a good time, maybe not a good time to talk about the fact that the whole way through this, I was reminded of the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, talk about that. Actually, what I thought as I read it was that Tolkien just plagiarized Dracula. Like, he, not plagiarized, but he took, he just he just ripped the pages of, well, or... There's a one-to-one I'm not, I'm correlation. It, there really does seem to be a one-to-one correlation that, that Lord of the Rings was ripped from the pages of Dracula. You've got Renfield's like Gollum. Mina's Frodo. Dracula is Sauron. Sauron. And uh, Van Helsing is... Gandalf. Gandalf. 
and yeah, the, yeah, the, this fellowship of the stalwart are going to go, and they have to go march on Castle Dracula and defeat. And they've got so you know, Renfield's the you know the creepy half in half out attached to master because of his twisted dark desires but yet you know from time to time we get a peek at redemption but he's you know kind of two-faced mina's got the window in just like when frodo puts the ring on you know he's got the window into wow she's got the window into sauron Tolkien, we have your number buddy <laughs> dracula's got the window into her we're on to you you know um she's she's bearing the weight of the eye of sauron and is you know slowly caving under it, the, that pressure, but has to go on so that the quest can be accomplished. He's got his faceless orc-like thugs in the form of the whatever they are, the the gypsies and the right. And the he's wolves. got wargs and wolves. And there's that moment where Van Helsing says that Dracula went and studied in Solomance or whatever the evil. Yeah, in Solomance. Yeah. And, and so you you read about it, and like it takes it takes ten people at a time, and then one of them gets turned into a wraith that rides a dragon around and does the devil's bidding. Wow. It's like <laughs> okay, yeah, well. <laughs> So anyhow, I just felt like I was reading like I felt like I was reading The Lord of the Rings, a bit cheaper and you know, yeah. There's, I was gonna say Tolkien much cheesier. To do it just a little bit better. <laughs> it, much yeah. Tolkien's much more artful and much more compelling. Um, just because he's he's just that much more wise and mature. Mm-hmm. And it, what got me onto this was just you know the dark is really dark and the light is really light. And so you've got Dracula and you've got Mina and you've got Sauron and you've got the the Fellowship. Anyhow, you, you told me that I'm not the only one yeah, to draw I that. Yeah, I to congratulate you because you are now on an, an intellectual peer with uh, one Stephen King. Who, I feel uh, special. Yeah, you should you should feel special. I you read, agree with that conclusion? I read the foreword to, I think, Salem's Lot, Stephen King's big vampire novel, and he talks about how, uh, which I don't recommend, by the way, uh, if you're a kid, if you're a McNeely kid listening to this, don't read Salem's Lot. Um, no, he talks about in there, he talks about how he read Dracula when he was about 10, and he really responded to it at the time as like a good versus evil this is great me and my best friends are gonna go kill vampires kind of story and then later on in high school or something when he read lord of the rings he said oh you know crap this is just the same thing just switch out sauron for dracula and switch out you know van helsing for uh, gandalf and you've got yourself lord of the rings so wow. good job jake next stephen king over there yep <laughs> just, right yeah. you just need to write your great <laughs> vampire novel now yeah. Let me get started started on that. Apparently, in the original novel, the tower collapses into like a volcano at the end. (laughs) It gets sheared off the side of the cliff. So they, I didn't know that. That's like Isengard falling. Yeah, Yeah. they cut cut that out of the. We caught you, Tolkien. Yeah. All right. Any other context we need to provide before we uh, move on with our lives and our Dracula discussion? Brandon, that was great. Yeah, you did. I can pin a Texas star to you my. Got, uh, yeah, you're, you're now deputized. I'm deputized. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the booking today. I am Nathan Alberson. I wrote, produced, did other things for this episode. Of course, Jake Menzel and Brandon Chastine performed it along with me, your humble and obedient host. Go to warhornmedia.com for more creepy crawly content and be sure to rate us highly on Ditunes. 